0: This message was presented at the GYC 2014 Conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, I want to uh, keep to our time as much as possible. Thanks, gentlemen, for being here this afternoon and uh, for the rest of you who are coming. Uh, Let's take a moment to pray uh, again. And ask God's blessing. So I would invite you, if, if, you are, if it's uh, practical for you to do so, to kneel. I'll, I'll remain standing just for the sake of the amplification. I think probably the uh, recording people would like to have the prayer on, uh, on the recording too. But uh, let's kneel together if that's practical for you. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have again of considering yet another uh, chapter in the book of Colossians. Lord, as we explore chapter 2, momentous issues are present here. We ask that your Holy Spirit will be giving us the wisdom that we need to rightly consider these things and to take the appropriate action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning we had the church in total, we had total focus, and we discovered that uh, first the church in total was, you know, the characteristics of the church in Colossae and the New Testament church in general there in just the first 12 verses of the book. And then the total focus of the church was Christ's person and work. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 13 to 23. And then uh, total purpose was revealed in 24 through 28 of Colossians chapter 1. And now we venture into chapter 2 and deal with total protection. And I say this because uh, there are many people today who are doing spiritual extreme sports. Uh, This is actually, uh, this is not a, Matthias, this is not a picture of when we went to iFly San Francisco. Matthias and I had an opportunity to go to iFly and do some indoor skydiving with a physics field trip from Weimar Institute. And we learned all about Reynolds numbers and uh, terminal velocity and all those great aerodynamic things. And we had a little bit of fun uh, with the uh, indoor skydiving as well. It's considered an an extreme sport. Uh, It's the only extreme sport that I'm involved in at my age of 50. Uh, It's the only one I intend to be involved in anyway. But I believe that many people in this generation are doing spiritual extreme sports. And what I mean by that is, of course, sports is a game. There are many people who are playing extremely dangerous games with their spirituality. And, of course, this was true for Paul's generation as well. And one thing we can't afford in our generation is to be in spiritual free fall. That is not a good option. And so Paul opens up Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, by saying these words. He says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at, what's the next word? Laodicea. Now, we mentioned this at the outset this morning, but twice in the book of Colossians, there is a reference to Laodicea. It's here in chapter 2. It's also in chapter 4. So in two chapters of this letter, Paul references Laodicea. Well, How does the book of Revelation characterize the last generation church? What is the designation that is given to the last generation church? You know, you have all the seven churches. Which one's the last one? Anyone know? Yeah, lukewarm, but what's the city that it's identified with? Laodicea, right? So Paul says here, I I would that you know what great conflict I have for you and those who are Laodicea. So when we see references to Laodicea in the New Testament, it's probably a good thing that we kind of wake up and say, oh, this might be important for me since we're part of the Laodicean church. And Paul said he had a conflict for them. He had a struggle for them. Why? Because whenever the gospel is preached, Satan does not allow that gospel to come to people unhindered. He always tries to introduce counterfeits, confusion. He attacks it, tries to destroy its validity. And Paul speaks, I think, here even of us when he says, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Does that include you and does that include me? Yeah, it does. So whatever we read here, whatever the warnings are, whatever the protective elements are in the book of Colossians, these things are written for us, friends. Let's not forget this. This is not just a historical study. If this was simply a historical study about a city that existed in ancient Turkey, we could all just go to sleep this afternoon and forget about it, right? No, the reason we're here is because we believe that this is relevant to our generation. All right, so Paul's burden for the church in Colossae and Laodicea, was that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the, of the Father and of Christ. We would probably translate that even of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you wanted to, uh, how many of you ever traveled overseas? Raise your hand high. Okay, great. Fantastic. Hopefully for mission purposes. If you're going to a country uh, where you know there is malaria present, what is it a good idea to do? What did you say, Sarah? I mean, I saw your lips move, but you can shout it out. Go ahead. Yeah, take the antimalarial drugs. And you have to start when? A couple of weeks before you leave, right? And we talk about doing that. Uh, that's called uh, prophylactic use of the drug. It's a protective thing that you take so that when you get over there, you don't get malaria, hopefully. Uh, Paul is giving us here a spiritual prophylactic drug that we can take uh, that will protect us from the things that he's going to mention later on in this chapter. So our hearts are to be comforted, being knit together in love, and he says uh, his burden is that we, uh, all the riches of the full assurance of understanding would be ours, Now, I want you to think about how extensive this is. All the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Paul speaks of the gospel as something that is like worldly wealth. It's riches. And there is a full assurance of understanding that it is our privilege to have. And if we have that, it will protect us against a lot of counterfeit junk that's out there. What's, what, what's one reason why people are led astray? is because they're not grounded in the truth. If you realize what it is that Jesus has done for us, if you understand what his purposes are for your life, for my life, and for this church, if you understand why this church exists today, its prophetic mission and calling, the message that has driven it, made it what it is. If you understand all that, if you understand what Jesus is doing now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, why he's there, and what will finish this work, you're not going to be moved if a wind blows your direction. Paul desires that for his hearers, that they would have the full assurance of understanding of the riches And to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and even of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If we know God like it is our privilege to know him, if we know Christ, understand what he's done for us, this will protect us. But in verse 4, Paul hints that there is a risk in being part of the New Testament church. He says, and this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. How does he characterize error here? Huh? Enticing words. Tell me what enticing words look like or sound like. And, and it, by the way, this, for those of you who are new coming in, thank you for coming. Uh, I wanna just mention, I'm a teacher, I teach real students in a real classroom at Weimar Institute, and uh, when I teach and I ask questions in class, I don't expect that there's gonna be silence in the room. I ask questions because I want you to think and therefore express your thoughts audibly. All right, is that okay? Can we do that? Can we all agree we're gonna respond when we ask questions, right? Okay, fantastic. So tell me what enticing words and beguiling, what does that conjure up in your mind? What does that sound like? Inviting. Inviting. Yes. What else? Encouraging the flesh. Encour- something that encourages the flesh. I can always count on my wife to respond when I say something. Thank you, sweetheart. Yeah, it's, it's all about encouraging the flesh. What else? Anything else that comes into your mind there? Tempting, Tempting yes. Eve eating the fruit. Yes, Eve eating the fruit. Yeah, Satan said, oh, wouldn't you love to taste that? It looks so good. Can't you just feel it in your mouth, right? He, he tried to entice her. Enticing really is getting somebody to think about something that they shouldn't think about Because you have an agenda. This is what marketing companies do to you every day. They try to get you to think about how great it would be to buy their product and experience it and enjoy it. When really, you should probably save your money in many cases. Okay, so, but this is what Paul was worried about. Verse 5 For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit joying and beholding your order. Now, he commends them first before he points out the issues, right? He says one other positive thing before he launches into the difficulties. This is a good principle of parenting, by the way. Don't just always, you know, I, I have been guilty of this. My kids are sitting back there, and they will they will say amen after I tell you. But I have been guilty of just pointing out the wrong things. But you should always point out the, some good things before you point out the bad things, Right? And that's what, exactly what Paul's doing here. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, joying and beholding your order, in the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So is that a good thing? Yes. Were they to be commended? Yes. Were there also some issues? Yes. He says, As ye, therefore have, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, having established in the faith, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So he gives them uh, a word of encouragement and an admonition. You know, as you have received Christ, walk in him, progress, go forward, don't lag behind. Don't maintain the status quo. Keep progressing in your understanding. How many of you were baptized recently? Raise your hand, like within the last two years. Anybody? Okay, a couple of you. I want to just give you a word of exhortation. Continue to grow in your understanding of the word of God. Continue to deepen your relationship with Christ. Continue to allow God's spirit to reform your life. And that goes for those of us who have been 20 years or more Seventh-day Adventists as well, doesn't it? You know, often we think, well, I've reached it now, I'm at a plateau, I'm just going to stay here. I'm not going to grow anymore. Friends, that's not a good plan to follow. If we're not growing, we're moving in the reverse. Okay, so now, here comes the big word of warning. Warning. Paul says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So, of course, the word beware, that's a word of what? Warning do we need any warnings today? You know, if Paul needed warnings in his day, if if the Colossian church needed these warnings, so much more we who live in a time where Satan has come down with great fury and because he knows his time is short. So if this applied to the Colossian church, it applies even more to us. So he says, beware lest any man spoil you. Now, this is not the, uh, when, it, when we use the word spoil, when, the, when you see that in the King James, this is not the idea of a piece of fruit that has sat on your kitchen counter too long, right? You know what happens when, that, when you leave that uh, apple there for six months on your kitchen counter? It spoils. But we're not talking about that kind of spoiling. Here's what we're talking about. To spoil someone means to make war against them and take what they have. You've heard of the term, uh, the spoils of war, right? And that's what happens when you defeat somebody and you take all their things, that's spoiling somebody. War booty. Sorry? War booty. Yeah, war booty, exactly. Somebody wants to make booty of the gospel, and he wants uh, wants to take it away from you, brother. Satan wants to take the gospel away from you. He wants to strip you of your assurance in Christ. He wants to get rid of all that. He wants to take away your godly life. He wants to spoil you. Paul says, beware, lest any man spoil you. Take what you have. By what means would this spoiling potentially happen, according to the text? There it is on the screen. Yes, philosophy, different ideas, new and strange teaching. Through philosophy and empty, vain deceit, just outright lying. After, in accordance with what? human tradition, traditional religions, after the rudiments or the basic principles of the world and not after Christ. Whatever is not after Christ, not in accordance with Christ, is something you don't want. How many of you would agree with that? Right? You don't want it if it's not after Christ, if it's not in accordance with his principles. So there's this risk and Paul's very clear about what it is. And we'll, in, the, in a few minutes, uh, be more plain about applying this text to our own situation. But right now, uh, in verse 9, Paul has some very simple answers to these questions. He reminds his hearers that in him, that is in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. I mean, why would you give up a personal identification with God? Let me ask you this. If some famous person were to Facebook you and say, Hey, I would like to be, you know, I would like to have a, form a relationship. I would like to you, I, I, I'd like to, you know, help you out. I'd like to talk, you know, give you some guidance in life and, and uh, you're free to call me anytime you want to and talk over issues that might be, uh, you know, bothering you or decisions that you need to make. If some person you really, really respected, How web for it? some person you really respected came to you and or Facebooked you and said, I'd really like to uh, get to know you better. And you were carrying on that that relationship. And this person was a benefit and a blessing to you. Would you want to just throw that away? Huh? No. Why would you do that? That would be silly. You know, if it's somebody who is trustworthy, really respected, and they said, you know, hey, I'm here for you. I'm here for you, brother. Sister, I'm here for you. So why would we ever want to turn from the one in whom dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily? And of course, you understand what this idea of bodily is, right? That means he understands the struggles that you have, because he had a, the same body that you have. So you've the God who became man, and he says, I want to get to know you. I'm on your side. Call me anytime. Let's talk. Paul reminds his hearers, look, here's the, here's the guy that, that is on your side. And he says, and you are complete in him. I mean, praise the Lord. Do you, you understand the implication of that text? In Christ, we have complete, perfect righteousness. We can stand before God in Christ, perfect, Complete. You are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You know, we talked about principalities and powers this morning, that Jesus was the one who created all the principalities and powers. Now we see that Jesus is the head of all principality and power. So all angelic beings, be they good angels or be they evil angels, Jesus is the head over all of that. Do you need to fear anything from them? The evil angels. Do you need to fear if Jesus is on your side? No. Unless you were silly enough to step away from him. And then he says, continuing this idea of our position in Christ and, and the, the benefits of it. He says, in whom also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, he's saying we're identified with Christ. Christ has put off the flesh, and in him, we've put off the flesh as well. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you were risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. On and on he goes, identifying the believer's Christian experience with the experience that Jesus had while he was here on this earth. Everything we experience is based on what he did. And so Paul is saying, you you don't want to give this up to you. You don't want to give up this identification with Christ, the one who identified with us, by coming in bodily form. He says, and you, being dead in your sins, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he done what? What does it say? Quickened. What is that word? That's an old-fashioned word. Yeah, he made alive. You know, you've got all of us by nature are like rotting corpses, spiritually speaking. And yet Jesus came through his Holy Spirit and made us alive made us alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Somebody ought to say amen. (laughs) You, You want to walk away from the one who made you alive? You want to walk away from the one who has forgiven you all trespasses? Surely not, right? Notice that the antidote for Heresy is to present the truth. You know, the the tradition of men can't stand up to this. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled the principalities and powers. Remember those? The evil angels? He spoiled them. They want to spoil you. But Jesus has already spoiled them by taking you away from them. Don't let yourself be taken back. That's the message. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, meaning the cross. So the cross of Christ has already settled the issue. Christ has bought and paid for us. He's made us alive. Paul says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body or the substance is of Christ. I'm going to read the rest of this uh, chapter And then I'll come back and sort of summarize what this tradition of men, philosophy, vain deceit looked like for the Colossians, and then we'll make applications to what it looks like now. He says, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Keep that in mind, please. Don't let that phrase slip out of your mind, because we're going to go away from this slide, but I want you to remember that, worshiping of angels. Intruding into those things which he has not seen, keep that one in mind too, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not beholding the head from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment, ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. So he says then, wherefore if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in your in the world, are ye subject to ordinances touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship, humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. So you say, all right, look, can you break that down for me? What does all that mean? Here's what was happening in Colossae. There were elements that were um, being brought in from several sources. One is from the sacrificial ritual of the Old Testament. You saw that reference there in Paul's statement, let no man judge you in meat and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbath days. Those are all part of the Old Testament ritual system. Uh, By the way, the weekly Sabbath is not implied there. Some people try to force it in there, but it really is not part of the context. The context is all the ritual service that was being carried on in the Old Testament time that was fulfilled in Christ, some people were wanting to carry that on, and they were mixing, and here's the key, they were mixing in with that asceticism. How many of you know what asceticism is? Okay, one person out of the whole group. Asceticism is... Uh, this idea that if I treat the body bad, it makes me holier. Okay, so, you know, like what the, what the monks have done in the past by um, whipping themselves and fasting for extended periods of time and sleeping on cold floors and all that type of thing. That's asceticism. Let me ask you this. Do you think that's any help in uh, mortifying sin? No, that's what Paul says here. He says that 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 does not uh, help uh, restrict the flesh at all. Um, So they were mixing together the ceremonies of the Old Testament, pagan asceticism and the worship of angels and speculative philosophy. Okay, remember I told you to remember I told you to remember worship of angels? What do we call that today? Spiritualism. Spiritualism. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Because who are the angels that why, why do, do God's angels allow people to worship them? How do we know? Revelation. You can find it there twice John was tempted to bow down to the angel and the angel said stop don't do that i am of your fellow servants right do evil angels allow people to worship them oh yeah they love that because they know that that means that people are turning away from god that's the essence of idolatry by the way you know the idols of the uh, in, in the world what's behind that what are those idols representing some of you probably come from cultures that maybe still, where, where some of that is still practiced. Now, we, we in America, we have different sorts of idols, and, and they're just as much connected to spiritualism as anything else, but uh, we couch it differently. But in many cultures, worship of idols is essentially worship of the ancestors, and that's worship of spirits, and that's worship of Who? Evil angels, right? So all that comes together in Colossae to form this big mixture of uh, what looked like it had the outward appearance of Bible religion, but the content was different because it was coming in from pagan philosophy, which was essentially spiritualistic in nature. Everybody understand what the Colossian heresy looked like. People observed some of the ceremonies just like other uh, Jews would, but when they talked and used the language, they meant something different. They were importing pagan ideas into, the, into, the, into their uh, religion. Anybody have a question on this? I want you to be sure you understand what was going on. Okay, does it make sense to you? Okay, So again, I want to look at Paul's admonition to us. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and empty deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So you had this mixture of philosophy, deception, tradition, basic principles of the world, And all of that was something that was not in harmony with Christ's teaching. All right, so (coughs) what was this? I mean, what is this for us? What does this look like? There are some interesting statements that Ellen White makes in the context of the book of Colossians, and especially Colossians chapter 2. Let's read this one together. I would like all of you to read it nice and loud, okay? This, I want you to be paying attention here. The warnings of the word of God regarding the perils surrounding the Christian church belong to us today. Underscore that, please. As in the days of the apostles, men tried by tradition and philosophy to destroy faith in what? The scriptures. What's the object? Destroy faith in the scriptures. So today, by the pleasing sentiments of higher criticism, evolution, spiritualism, theosophy, and pantheism, the enemy of soul righteousness is seeking to lead souls into forbidden paths. So what is this? It's a conglomeration of stuff related to one another. Um, Higher criticism, evolution, Spiritualism, Theosophy, and Pantheism. Now, these are all related, actually. I'm not going to go into all the details of how they're related, but I just want to ask you, when you look at that list, is that still a relevant list? Yes, Yes, it is. And you'll see how relevant it is. She says, here's a picture of Rudolf Bultmann, one of the premier higher critics of the Bible, of the twentieth century, notice the pipe that he is smoking there. <clears throat> I wonder if that uh, somehow made his frontal lobe less uh, operable, so that he was unable to discern the truth as he perhaps at once could have. Bultmann was the one who said that the second coming of Jesus was a myth that the church should abandon as soon as possible. Uh, You know, everything to him was a myth. He didn't believe anything in the New Testament, hardly. So these words apply especially to him and the people like him. To many, the Bible is a lamp without oil because they have turned their minds into channels of speculative belief that bring misunderstanding and confusion. The work of higher criticism... In dissecting, conjecturing, reconstructing, is destroying faith in the Bible as a divine revelation. It is robbing God's Word of power to control, uplift, and inspire human lives. And here's what higher criticism is it is a philosophy, it is not a methodology. Some people will tell you, oh, we're just using this method to interpret the Bible. It's just one of many methods we could use wrong. It is a philosophy. Because methodology doesn't make the kind of assumptions that higher criticism makes. Higher criticism views the Bible as an ordinary document. Just like any other historical document, that's how higher critics view the Bible. They look at the Bible the same way they would read Caesar's Gallic campaigns or Homer's Odyssey, or anything else. They assume, listen to this carefully, higher critics assume that the Bible is full of contradictions and that what we see is not what we get. They deconstruct the Bible. They say, well, I know it says that Paul wrote this letter, but we can't believe that. Someone else wrote this, used Paul's name, or somebody else added it later, et cetera, et cetera, They completely tear the Bible apart, and then they speculate as to how it was really written and why. It becomes merely a human production, according to higher criticism. And what that does is this. It ultimately puts you and I in the judgment seat as to what Scripture is and what it means for us today. Higher criticism completely strips away the authority of the Bible, and it puts you and I in that place of authority, that we can judge what the Bible means and how we should relate to it. In other words, it rejects the Protestant principle that the Bible is the fully inspired word of God and that it is, it is its own interpreter. Higher criticism is all about you and I interpreting the Bible. Protestantism and Adventism is not about you and I interpreting the Bible. It's about allowing the Bible to speak for itself. Now, lately, we have been hearing a lot uh, about different interpretive uh, approaches to the Bible in the controversy over women's ordination. And I'm not going to weigh in full on into that controversy, of course, in, the, in this uh, seminar. That's not the purpose of what we're talking about today. But there have been some interesting hermeneutics. Uh, how many of you know what hermeneutics is? Hermeneutics is simply the principles you use to interpret scripture. So there have been some interesting methods of interpretation proposed uh, in this whole debate over women's ordination. One of them, That we've been hearing a lot about is trajectory hermeneutics, or we call it redemptive movement hermeneutics. In that system, the norm is no longer what the Bible teaches, but an ultimate ethic toward which the Bible was heading. Are you catching this? In other words, it's human speculation becoming the norm about what, or is, what is or is not authoritative in the Bible. We see, you know, well, it says this in the Old Testament, but then it says this in the New Testament. And ultimately, I think the Bible is headed towards this ultimate goal. So we don't have to make the New Testament uh, statements authoritative. Instead, what's really authoritative is where the Bible is headed. Now, how do you figure that out? Hmm? Who decides where the Bible's headed? Do you? Do I? Does some group of scholars decide that? You know, you can take that uh, type of meth- that method of interpretation some interesting directions. I'll show you one of them right now. Here's what Wayne Grudem a uh, Protestant scholar, not an Adventist, but he writes a lot of good things. Here's what Wayne Grudem said uh, regarding the redemptive movement hermeneutic. He said, on this basis, a Roman Catholic could argue that more reliable than any speculation on where the New Testament teaching was leading are the historical facts of where the New Testament teaching did lead, in their view. So the redemptive movement hermeneutic would give us the following picture, which actually was fulfilled in church history. First, you could say, well, Jesus' teachings mention no local church officers or church governing structure. Right? Everybody agree with that? Did Jesus talk about elders and deacons? No, he didn't. Number two, Paul's writings show increased authority given to elders and deacons. Everybody agree with that? Sure. So here's where... Roman Catholics could say, the ultimate ethic lies. Uh, The final ultimate ethic to which the redemptive spirit of Scripture was leading, according to them, might be worldwide authority given to the Pope, cardinals, and bishops. Now, how many of you think that that's a good method to to use to interpret the Bible? Huh? You think we should do that? I mean... Do you see that you can prove anything you want using this type of hermeneutics, this type of, these, these sorts of principles of interpretation? This is an example of higher criticism where the Bible no longer becomes the standard by which we judge not only our own lives, but in fact, we don't judge our own lives. The Bible is no longer the standard that judges us. We decide what the standard will be based on our own scholarship and speculation. Friends, how long do you think the Sabbath would hold up as a doctrine, a teaching of the Seventh-day Adventist church using this kind of a hermeneutic? I mean, you could easily say, well, according to the redemptive movement hermeneutic, you know, really Sunday is the day, right? The ultimate authority then becomes where I think the Bible is pointing, not what it actually says. No wonder our General Conference President, Elder Wilson, said, one of the most sinister attacks against the Bible is from those who believe in the historical, critical, or higher critical method of explaining the Bible. This unbiblical approach of higher criticism is a deadly enemy of our theology and mission. He said that in his inaugural address in 2010. I agree. I've seen the fruits of it. I've studied some of it, read some scholars that believed it. You aren't left with anything that you can hold on to. So higher criticism is one of the dangers that is facing our church today. We need to move completely in the opposite direction of it. Now, there's also the evolutionary danger. Uh, s- at the beginning of my, uh, one of my classes last semester, I taught a class in the 28 Fundamental Beliefs. And I picked up this uh, article on the Spectrum blog. Uh, an, uh, an anonymous Seventh-day Adventist biology professor at one of our institutions uh, wrote this whole piece dealing with uh, his reflections on creation and theistic evolution and so on and so forth. So here's one of the questions he asked in this uh, whole piece. You know, this is where theistic evolution, you know, this is where long ages, if you accept that, you know, long ages fit into the Bible, this is where you ultimately are led to. He says, if death did not originate with original sin, and that's where you are, if you say that you believe in long ages, if, you, if long ages are how things really happen, then what sense does it make to talk about a fall? Right? Have you thought about that? How many of you have reflected on these questions before? Okay, a number of you have. Some of you haven't. If you talk about long ages... And you don't see the first few chapters of Genesis as laying down history. This is how it happened. If you say, well, I think it happened over billions of years, then what sense does it make to talk about the tree of knowledge? What sense does it make to talk about the fall? Plus, we're told in Scripture that the wages of sin is what? Death. Where did death come from then? If you believe in long ages, it came long before there were any human beings, right? So it couldn't be connected with sin in any way. So here's where you're left with. If death did not originate with original sin, he asks the question, did Jesus have to die to eradicate sin? What's the obvious answer to that question? No. If death originated before original sin, then, did, then what's, what did Jesus have to die for? Right? It doesn't make any sense. I feel, like a, I feel like this isn't coming across to you. Does everybody understand what I'm saying, the implications? Yeah, I'm going to do that. See, if the wages of sin is death okay, as the Bible speaks, then we understand why Jesus had to die. Because he had to deal with sin. He had to pay the penalty for sin. Okay? Death is the penalty for sin. Sin came first, then death came. This is according to how the Bible portrays it. First came sin, then came death, and then came atonement for sin. Right? By suffering of death. But if you say that death was before human beings were ever existing you know while we were still uh, organic soup or something then what connection is there if any between sin and death is there a connection between sin and death if death happened way long time ago and then human beings arrived much later you want to say something brother Yeah, right. That's that's a perfect, uh, a good question. I haven't finished reading this, but you're reading through the whole thing and looking at the implications. Okay, so if but if if death came before sin, then there's no linkage between sin and death. So therefore, what sense does it make for Jesus to die on the cross? What was he doing? You know, I mean, he it it wasn't to forgive sins, obviously, because sin and death aren't connected if you believe that death came before sin. Okay, so uh, here's what his response is to the question. I have heard it suggested that Jesus did not have to die. Well, that makes perfect sense if you believe in long ages, if you believe death came before sin. Then there's no link between sin and death. And so therefore, would Jesus have to die? No but that he did so because this is a major part of what it is to be human and Jesus came to identify us and to show us how to live in relationship. What does this evolutionary theory do to the cross of Christ, friends? It completely makes it irrelevant. It doesn't make any sense to talk about the cross of Christ. It doesn't make any sense to talk about atonement for sin by someone dying on a cross. I mean, that just is ridiculous. So right away, immediately, I could could have, you know, if we had a whole seminar to talk about this alone, uh, we could have gone into this more in depth. They gave me the whole book of Colossians. What can I say? Right? We have to be brief. But I would encourage you to study this out. Uh, But the whole atonement comes unraveled if you embrace long ages and, and say that you know, God directed the process of evolution over billions of years to get where we are today. Then, then you don't have the cross of Calvary anymore. And then what do you really have? What's left of the Christian religion? I don't think we're going to, we won't deal with that slide. Let's go to this one. By the way, is evolution still an issue for us today? Nobody's teaching that perhaps? Is that gone by the wayside? No, it's everywhere. It's pervasive. Now, who are these young ladies? Anybody want to venture a guess? Yeah, those are the Fox sisters. Ellen White says, I was directed to this scripture as a, especially applying to modern spiritualism. Colossians 2 eight. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. By spiritualism, she says again in Acts of the Apostles, multitudes are taught to believe that desire is the highest law, that license is liberty, and that man is accountable only to himself. So um, want. I'll just read that underlined part. The Colossian believers, as we, will meet with spiritualistic interpretations of the scriptures, but we are not to accept them. Okay? I believe that's also connected with higher criticism, and I'll show you why. Here we go. Spiritualism, wrapping up here. You're familiar with this one from Great Controversy 558. Even in its present form, so far from being more worthy of toleration than formerly, it is really, that is, spiritualism is really a more dangerous because of more subtle deception. Now, I want you to observe what spiritualism looks like and ask yourself if you've seen it or heard it in your church. While it formerly denounced Christ and the Bible, it now does what, friends? Professes to accept both. So spiritualism is going to look a lot like Christianity. People are going to profess to accept the Bible, and they're going to profess to accept Jesus. Okay, number two. I put these numbers in here, by the way. She didn't, but I wanted to make it more uh, readable for us. Number two, but the Bible is interpreted in a manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart. Let me ask you a question. Do you think this has anything to do with higher criticism? What's being discussed here? How you interpret the Bible, principles of interpretation, hermeneutics. Don't miss this point. The hermeneutics we use, the principles of interpretation we use on the Bible can lead us into spiritualism. If we interpret the Bible in this manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart, and that's what I believe is happening amongst us, People have things that they want to do. They want to justify this or that. And so they reinterpret Scripture so that they can do it by these new hermeneutical principles that are being brought in. While it's, That's going on while its solemn and vital truths are made of no effect. So authority of the Bible is diminished. The Bible is being interpreted in a manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart. New hermeneutical principles. Number three, love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God. Have we heard any of that? Right? I mean, is that a good thing? Is that true? Is love the chief attribute of God? Yes, it is. So there's a measure of truth there. However, it is degraded in spiritualism to a weak sentimentalism, making little distinction between good and evil. God's justice, his denunciations of sin... The requirements of his holy law are all kept out of sight. The people are taught to regard the Decalogue as a dead letter. Now you say, but that's not happening in Seventh-day Adventist churches, is it? Is it? I've heard it. And what, I mean, how could we, how are we not regarding the Decalogue as a dead letter when we justify all sorts of violations of the Seventh Commandment in the name of being loving and kind and accepting. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about alternative lifestyles. Marriages that are inappropriate. You know what I'm getting at? It's a violation of the Seventh Commandment, isn't it? I mean, are we not teaching that the Decalogue is a dead letter when we start advocating for gay marriage and all of this? Right? I mean, what would that be if not this? I mean, let me just ask you, I mean, I know, I know we're a little over time, but I just want to ask you one question. If you had somebody who was a murderer, unrepentant murderer, who was killing people all the time, and that guy said, hey, I want to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I want to be a member of your church. But I don't, I don't think I need to stop murdering people, right? I, I'm, I'm cool with breaking the Sixth Commandment. Are you? And what would you say? What, would we accept someone like that into our membership and say, yeah, sure, brother. Hey, we need to be accepting, right? Then what if we wouldn't, and I don't think we would, then why would we seek to bring people in as full church members who are violating any of the other commandments, particularly in our culture, the seventh. Do you see the inconsistency there? Not to say that we aren't, shouldn't be loving to people. We should. We should, be, we should approach people with kindness, courtesy, right? Not, not condemning them. But it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to say, yeah, come on, you're fully members of God's family now. I think there's a problem there. Number four, pleasing, bewitching fables captivate the senses and lead men to reject the Bible as the foundation of their faith. Have you noticed the tendency that we have towards stories in our sermons. I mean, you can hear sermons that are so full of stories, you forget what the Bible text was. Right? (laughs) A lot of preachers are really popular just by telling a bunch of stories in their sermon. And we love it. What's the matter with us? Shouldn't we be getting back to the Word of God? I'm not saying there's not a place for a good story in a message. Of course there is. You know, sometimes that can bring the point home. But that's what it should be used for, to bring the point home, not to be the point. And then, number five, Christ is as, here's where you end up Christ is as verily denied as before, but Satan has so blinded the eyes of the people that the deception is not discerned. So, all of that is part of God's, I'm oh, sorry, part of Satan's plan to introduce spiritualism into our church in a new form. If you haven't bumped into it yet, you will. Here's what an old friend of mine, who is now a former Adventist pastor, said. He said, I want to be for something good, but I don't want boundaries. And religion just feels like a very bounded thing. This is really the essence of spiritualism, by the way. Can you see that image on the screen? What do you see there? A fence. It's a coyote fence. This is, from, this is a picture of New Mexico. You know, people pay a lot of money for properties that are fenced, that have boundaries. You know why? Because they keep out a lot of bad stuff. So, here's the takeaways. Friends, the devil does not wait outside the door of the church. He will come right in. An elder of mine once said, yeah, the devil can't come in the church because, you know, at the name of Jesus, he flees. I'm like, brother, (laughs) you need to recognize (laughs) that your understanding of things is not complete. I later found out he was into a lot of bad stuff actually. He wanted to believe that the devil wasn't going to bother him, but the devil was all over that guy. Number two, God cares enough to warn us about destructive heresy. Aren't you thankful? And number three, are you willing to heed the warnings? You know, I read about the uh, recent flooding in Australia uh, people were ignoring signs to not drive down roads. Uh, they do that here, too, in the United States, but uh, they mentioned it in, uh, specifically in Australia. Uh, so this guy named Gill, he's uh, one of the road supervisors there. He says, although detours are inevitably longer and inconvenient for drivers, the hazards were far too great to take chances. When trees fall over, branches, branches can become fully submerged and could pierce straight through a vehicle, and by implication, straight through you. It is a timely reminder about the danger of driving through floodwaters with some drivers unfamiliar with the risks. Ashley Sullivan said, we're still experiencing people actually driving through floodwaters when there is a longer way around and a safer way, but they just want to go on their normal road, which is covered in floodwaters, and that's when they get stuck, he said. The really disgusting part about it is you don't actually know what's in the water. It could be sewage. It could be chemicals. It could be anything. It's really not a healthy place for people to be, playing, driving, or walking through floodwaters. Friends, I want to just assure you that we're in flood season right now. We're being flooded with error. The devil is making his all-out attack to get us on, on a different path. And if you play in the floodwaters, you have no idea what you're bumping into. How many of you would like to commit, as we close today, to paying attention to the warnings that God has given us in his word, to putting away things like philosophy and empty deception, moving away from higher criticism, spiritualism, evolution, and anything else that would take us away from the cross of Calvary. Would you like to say today to Jesus, I want to stay at the cross? How many of you would like to make that commitment today? May God help us to do so. Let's stand for prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that your spirit would continue to bless and encourage us as we work our way through the remainder of Colossians tomorrow and Sabbath. Lord, there is so much encouragement left. Help us to give heed to the warnings presented here, especially as they apply to our own church and generation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 Conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.